Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, uh, here with another one of our off-season case studies. This is is somewhat of a bridge-building exercise between two natural enemies. So it's a, a Tom Ugly's podcast today, but I'm here with one of the hosts of the Sharkcast Radio podcast. It's Adam Newman. How are you going, mate? Yeah, glad to be here, Michael. Yeah, just come over the bridge closer to our current home ground at Cox Jubilee. <laughs> it's very strange times in 2020, more ways than one, but... Yeah, really happy to be on the pod, and thanks for the invite. No, this this is really good. We've been hoping to tee this up for a while. Uh, just, you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on it now that you brought it up. How are you finding, you know, crossing the bridge for for Cogra? Oh, look, I find it very strange, and I've um, I've been very, I haven't been uh, silent in my uh, opinion on it on on the podcast, and I actually was consulted by. Uh, Richard Munro, who was the CEO of the Sharks at the time, about the move, and I said I, I opposed it. Um, and we'll, I know on the run sheet you've asked me about my background with the club, but I feel that a club like Cronulla and the Dragons, to an extent, are, are very much steeped in place. Um, and Woolaware is our home, and, and I feel very strange about going to, to Cogra. It's always been an uncomfortable place to watch football for us. I've never seen Cronulla win there until, oh, really? until this year. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's your home ground. It doesn't feel like home for us. It, it's, it's strange, but it's a necessary evil at the moment. Um, and if they can pull off what they want to pull off at Woolaware, it's going to be better for, for the club as a whole. Yeah. It, it is a funny time. I went to the, the Dragons away game at Cogra against the Sharks earlier in the year. Well, how was that for you? Uh, it was very, very odd, but, yeah. but I, I kind of, I kind of reveled in it somewhat to yeah. know that you Sharks fans had to cross the bridge, which yeah. you don't like doing yeah. at the best of times. So I, I kind of liked the fact that there were way more Dragons fans than there were Sharks fans there that night. Well, when I had that conversation with Richard Munro, who's subsequently left, he said our options are Cogra, the SFS, or Bank West. And he's like, I know that if we go to any one of those other locations, the Sharks fans just won't travel. Mm. So we have to offer up Cogra because... If we play at Bank West, regardless of how good it, good it is, they won't travel. And he's right. You know, they've, the Sharks fans have got that insular reputation and it's probably deserved. So in terms of the practicalities of it, um, it's the best situation given they're on the road, but it still feels odd. Yeah. About it. Well, we've got way ahead at the start. So let's go go back to the start and a bit of your background and, and where you come at the Sharks from. Well, I grew up in a, a rugby league household, as is probably everyone who... Um, who listens to RLD? Um, and I've got to jump in early and just say it's so fantastic to to see an academic journalistic podcast. As Sam and I with Sharkcast were very early adopters, um, and it's just proliferated to now. Almost everyone has a podcast, mm. and uh, a lot of them are hot takes, guys in pubs, and that's fair enough. It's got its place, but uh, to be on it, to hear your podcast and how thoroughly researched it is, and with an intellectual uh, the intellectual level of research is, is fantastic. So I'm, I'm pleased to be here. But um, yeah, I grew up in a rugby league household, but my family were all Bulldog supporters. Um, and then we moved to the Sutherland Shire when I was about 10 years old. Mm. And it wasn't until I started playing r- local rugby league that I developed an affinity to the Sharks. And it all points towards Super League too, because um, when, I, when I was reflecting on, on my journey for, for our chat, uh, it was around about 1993, 92 when the Sharks started playing night games on Saturday night, which was we're used to now with Super Saturday, but that was a new thing. Mm. And that was a risk for the club um, to do that. And uh, it was it was like a pre-Super League thing, you know, fireworks and night game. Um, and that was a social outlet. Uh, so I started going to that basically every Saturday. Um, and I was just like, you know what? I really like the team now. And that snowballed um, into sort of a lifelong obsession. Yeah. Um, and uh, but 
you know, it was very much at the Super League at the time. We were right on board, and we'll talk about it um, more later on. But that whole nighttime flash glamorous thing felt like it fit um, for my age group, and yeah, that. So it was going to those night games um, and getting behind the team that, that developed the, the love of the club. And you guys were almost unbeatable in those night games. I remember the, the Mitch Healy, Paul Green era. Yeah, the, well, the... well, yeah, well, the Sharks had a terrible era prior to that, um, and we're sort of preempting. But in '83, it all goes. I did a lot of research before I came on and spoke to some of the old stages, and a lot of it all comes back to '83 when the club went broke, and uh, and you know it's a constant theme with the Sharks having financial issues. But you know they lost Gavin Miller. They lost Steve Rogers because every player was encouraged to take a pay cut. Sorry, they didn't lose Gavin Miller. They lost the Sorensen brothers. Um, and you can imagine it now going to any top NRL squad and saying, you know, you've got to take a 50% pay cut, how that'd fly. So the club almost got kicked out with Newtown and Wests um, and they managed to survive, but they, it set up a very dire period. They didn't have any money and they were relying almost entirely on local juniors. Um, and aside from a, a breakout year in 1988, uh, they were poor. Uh, and it wasn't until that night game period um, when Johnny Lang showed up um, that there was uh, a, a lot that ended sort of a golden era until the Sharks won the premiership. So those night games where Shark Park became a bit of a fortress and the club sort of found its identity post the, that 1978 loss of the grand final. So yeah, that... And, and again, they went. Um, they became. They went into liquidation in 1993. So that post that period, the night games, the John Lang era, the ET era, that was a real golden era for the club. And that's when I got on board. And Super League sort of fit them hand in glove. Yeah, you've covered. You know, you've given a nice little setup for so many of the things I want to talk about today. Before we get to all that, I want to just stay on on the Shire and 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 you more particularly because. You've got the Shire accent down, Pat. I, I see you on Facebook. You're a very passionate advocate for all things Shire. <laughs> um, how, how old are you? I'm 40. Yeah, You're 40, yeah. yeah. So same age as me, basically. Yeah. I um, What was your junior club? I played for Aquinas Colts. Yeah, right. Menai Roosters. So I was a bit of a Shire misfit growing up in Menai. The Shire Council collects your bins, but if you go down to Cronulla, you're definitely an outsider. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's just, I've grown to love the Sutherland Shire, but... It's a, a tortured relationship. Yeah, it's a, it's a different place. It's different than anywhere else in Sydney. Oh, it absolutely is. I, um, you know, I grew up in the inner west. You know, now I'm living a lot closer to the Shire, but on the right side of the bridge. Mm-hmm. But um, my cousins lived in Engadine, so I was yeah. spending a lot of lot of time uh, as a kid in the Shire. Went to a lot of Engadine Dragons games as as they were playing, and uh, you know, got even lived in the Shire briefly. So I've I've got to know the Shire quite well, but. It is an absolute mystery to me, the, the culture and the very specific Shire mentality. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, well, yeah. Look, it's it's completely different. It is very insular. Uh, the people who live there feel like they don't need to go anywhere else. And, you know, a trip over Tom Ugly's requires, a, you know, lodging your passport and changing <laughs> your money. And, they're yeah, but I only grew to love it. So when I graduated high school and uni, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I moved to Bondi, to Newtown, inner west. I lived for a long time in the inner west and overseas and travelled. And it wasn't until I did those things that I came back and started to appreciate it for what it was. But, you know, the riots were a, a black day and that sort of changed my mentality uh, in in terms of there are a lot of good people in the Shire, um, but I, I felt like those voices needed to be heard more than the the, the voices that we were hearing around that time, the, you know, the um, intolerance and, and the narrow-mindedness. And, uh, you know, you do see parallels um, in rugby league, uh, but I'm proud that the Sharks are a pretty inclusive club. They've always had a strong relationship with, with Coorys, um, you know, David Peachy and the like. And uh, it's, a, yeah, it's definitely a strange, a str- <laughs> I don't know if strange is the right word. It's a curious place. Mm. Um, and it can be insular and it, and it can be inward looking, but it offers a great lifestyle and um, there are a lot of good people there that are very tolerant and, and, and very inclusive. Yeah, I, I think you're right that the, the riots was somewhat of a tipping point where, you know, people realise that, you know, this had gone too far and we've, we've got to do something about it. And yep. I, I think even the public perception of the Shire has changed somewhat in the, you know, 15 years or so since. Yeah, well, the... the, the the subsequent four or five years, 
were bad. You really got painted with a, with a brush. And, you know, rightly so. Like, that was a black day. And I lost a lot of friends over it because a lot of people justified the actions. And look, on that actual day, my car got trashed. So I lived, a lot of the footage that you saw on TV, I lived on a Louvre Road. And when some of the retribution attacks came later that night, like, my car got smashed up. I was threatened in the street. Um, and, yeah, it was just bizarre timing. But it did... After the initial blowback, I think it allowed enough inward-looking reflection for people to say, hey, we need to adjust our, our mentality here. And we're part of a greater Sydney and a part of a greater Australia, which is diverse, has a lot of cult- uh, cultures to it, and is, you know, it's a it's a broad church, for want of a better term. And, I mean, it's still, <laughs> we remark, me and my wife often remark, we live in Caringbar and our street's white bread. Mm. Like, we don't have... Any ethnic families in the street at all, and I totally welcome that. But it is it is white bread. There's yeah, no, no getting around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, slowly, slowly. I, I think it maybe is starting to change. But let, let's talk about the sharks and and your podcast, which you've been doing for a long time. How, how long has that been going? Yeah, we started in 2015, and without tooting our own horn, we Sam and I, Sam and I have done some research. When we were definitely the first club based supporter podcast in the in the in the airwaves, and we've been going since 2015. So this puts us into our sixth year. Um, and we've gone from, we've seen it from podcasts being somewhat of a niche oddity to now there's just mainstream and almost everybody has one. And at one point, there were four Sharks podcasts, uh, which was quite interesting. How mm-hmm. much content can you take? But we were actually brought in by the club. So the club had a very forward thinking media manager at the time. Uh, and this was 2016, the great year 2016, and he brought us into the club and, and put our podcast on the air. So he actually put us on uh, Sharkcast TV, it was called, and for two years we had a, a TV, a panel TV show in the club and we were given the reins to do that, and they were amazing, awesome times. And that's one of the great things about the Sharks, because it's a small local club, it offers those opportunities. I can't imagine the Broncos ever giving the the media getting some fans in to do some media content. It just just wouldn't happen. But that gave me insight into how a, a media department works in an NRL club and also some awesome opportunities. Like when the Sharks won the grand final finally in 2016, Sam and I were invited to the players' function and that was, as you can imagine, mm. a very wild time. Um, so we've seen the, the proliferation of podcasts as uh, a real change agent and the democratization of, of rugby league media and the fact that, you know, we'll report on something and it ends up in the paper, it always kind of blows me away because, yeah. you know, the journos listen. Um, and, you know, to see your podcast, you know, do what, in my view, me, um, traditional media should have done in reporting on this fascinating era of the sport, not just rugby league, but in Australian sporting history. You guys have done a better job on it than, than any traditional media. So, yeah, we're a big advocate for podcasts and podcasting and, and fan-generated content. And yeah, we've had a great a great time doing it. I've made uh, friends with a lot of current and ex-players. We have a party every year, uh, except for this year. And uh, we get about 150 people come and watch uh, a game at, at one of our sponsors, the Royal Motor Yacht Club. Um, and we get, we've had Luke Vell, Gavin Miller, Jonathan Docking, Aaron Raper, I always chuckle when you talk about Aaron Raper being lost to the game because like, <laughs> he literally lives around the corner uh, and, we, and we catch up. Um, yeah, so a lot of those guys engage with us socially because of what we've done, which which provides an enormous level of satisfaction. It's been a good time. How do you? Because I, I was listening to some of your recent episodes uh, in preparation for this and you, you definitely don't uh, hold anything back in terms of you know criticizing players who are underperforming or, or anything else. So how do you? And I know you've had you know some of the current players on the show. How do you strike that balance of well, being always, respectful, but you know? Yeah, we've always got an open invitation to any player. Like I'd love to have Josh Dugan come on and, and chat to Josh Dugan. He cops it um, from the from you know I call it the peanut gallery on on social media. But I we and we know the Sharks media manager really well, and he. He knows that, um, you know, if these guys have got an issue, they can ring us up and blast us and we'll take it. But, yeah, it, it is difficult. You don't want to alienate the club, but we're there for the fans first and we're there to promote the club. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, if we think someone's not playing well, then then we'll we'll go to town on them. But we, I don't th- think we ever target anyone or be unfair. It's only based on performance. Um, and, you know, if, if there's mitigating circumstances, we're, we're happy to hear it. And, you know, we've got an, as I said, we've got an open invitation. 
We've had Chad Townsend on there numerous times, and he's uh, another that comes up for a lot of scrutiny by the by the fan base. Um, you know, I'm not loving the way he's playing this year, but when you learn a little bit more about the story behind maybe why it, it and we can we can uh, communicate that to the fan base, if it makes mm. sense. It, it's funny listening to you guys because you know I'm a massive Dragons fan. That it's one of the very most important things in my life. I couldn't imagine anything worse than having to just talk about the Dragons every week, particularly how they've been performing, you know, for the last few years. Like, do, does that ever get to you, you know, if the Sharks aren't doing well? Oh, there are certainly weeks when you, I'm just like, I don't want to do this. But you always, you know, Sam and I mates, right? So it's very much like once we get talking about the game, it's more like two mates having a beer in the pub. And I do, I mean, we do keep it to a format so it doesn't ramble. But... um yeah, there are certainly times, particularly when the team's not playing well, or particularly when it's round 15 and the game isn't that consequential. It, it can be difficult to find the motivation, but, you know, there's always something. And we've got, we have sponsors that, that and I'll, I'll be clear, you know, I'll be transparent. We, we have sponsorship um, uh, that, you know, they've paid to have ads on our show and they require content and um, and we're happy to provide it because they, they're the ones that keep us going. But, yeah, it can be tough. Um, there's no doubt about it, particularly when, I mean, you guys have had a, a battler of the year and you turn up and you think, oh. And what, a lot of what we do is driven by the fans, you know. We don't just get out there and talk about our opinions. It's We always uh, respond to, to input from fan. The letter segment is the biggest part of the show. So, yeah, we, we try and keep it, um, give the voice, a voice to the fans. Um, and a lot of that can be lost in social media. Like, there's so many groups, and I know the Dragons are probably the worst for it, people just kicking off mm. in a Facebook group about how the team's performing or the board or the coach or whatever. But if you can provide them with a focused um, outlet to do that, it's it's more, it's healthier than just yeah. swimming into the breeze. I, th- I think you guys had the benefit of not winning a comp for 50 years. Whereas, So there's some perspective there, whereas Dragons fans think we have a right to win the comp every year. Yeah, it's funny. And, yeah, so... And now you look over the bridge at the uh, malign younger brother, which has now grown up to be handsome, <laughs> handsome stronger. <laughs> hold, hold off, mate. Let's... <laughs> um, we, 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 I do want to move to the Sharks, but before I do, uh, it'd be remiss of me to not shout out your co-host, uh, Sam Shinazi, who I've, I've been... I used to watch him play at the Hopeton Hotel like 20 yeah, years ago. Glory days. Um, really, really great Sydney singer-songwriter. So um, it, it was... It was funny to like see him turn up like all these years later. I'm like, oh, that's I used to know him as the C minus project. Well, yeah, yeah, the C minus C minus project. He's hosting a Sharks podcast. Yeah, and he's he's what, he's in very senior at Fox Sports now. Yeah, right. In the stats department, but he's even the early C minus material. They're always little like Sharks nuggets. Yeah, <laughs> in there. So he's always been a passionate supporter. Yeah, I've got a split seven inch out, out in the shed. I'll have to dig that up yeah, and dig it out. He'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll be keen. He's got a new album coming out. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, and his tunes are really good. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the the sharks as a club, and you've touched on on some of it. I want to start uh, in the in the eighties and and all the the financial problems, which you seem it seems like over the existence of the sharks, you're only ever a few years away from another financial crisis. And hundred percent, yep. So, can you account for that? Why has this always been such a struggle? Well, they're a small club to begin with, um, and. Without, I don't want to. I'm not here to kick the dragons, but you look at the 11 premiership run. It ended in '67 when the Sharks started, right? So um, the Dragons had all the run of the area, and then the Sharks weren't even supposed to get up uh, with the New South Wales Rugby League. Wentworthville was supposed mm. to be the club that joined with Penrith, and somehow um, through the work of Peter Burns, who the Peter Burns stand is named after, he managed to get there. And we're talking ancient history now, but, you know, the shark, it's always been a small battler club. And when you lift the lid on what actually goes on behind the scenes and get an intimate view, it's some of the stuff, the stories I could tell, it's just, it's chook raffle stuff in, in, in the way that the clubs run. Um, and, for example, the first ever game they had at Southern Oval, the officials turned up and said, there's no way you can play here. This is... this." I don't know if you've ever been to someone no. that's still there. It's the same then as it was. Yeah. It doesn't have any grandstands, dressing sheds, and it didn't have any of that then. And they said, how can you play out of here? And they, someone did a deal where they think some money was paid so that the game would go ahead. Um, and things haven't improved. Yeah. It's always been a real little hokey, dinky, 
local club, which is why I like it, conversely and ironically enough. If they were to relocate to Perth or play out of a mega stadium, that'd be enough for me, probably. But financially, they started in a weak position and it never, ever, ever got any better. They were it went into receivership in 83 and 90, early 90s. It was either 92 or 93. And then in 2011, the, the Wolves were at the door. Mm. They were gonna, that was the last time they were going to go under. So they've always operated under that yoke of you know, bankruptcies at the door. And it's a miracle that they're still in existence. Um, and you guys have touched on it when you talked about Wests and, and Rugby League finding a way that's been very similar with the Sharks. And it's been through history, you know, fundraising drives and buy a brick for the Sharks and the amount of private sponsors that have come in at the 11th hour and bailed them out. Even as recently as like five years ago, there was this mysterious pizza man that, that turned up and gave a cash uh, interest-free loan um, to keep the club afloat. I mean, it's just a constant theme. And finally, with the property development they've done, um, it's provided some financial security moving forward. But there isn't a person who understands the history of the club that feels like it will ever end. There is always a feeling that either development won't be finished and look, COVID's having an impact on that, or they'll just mismanage the funds and we'll be back to square one. Yeah, it's, it's something Andy and I joke about on the podcast quite a lot, the fact that you know the clubs need to become property developers to make any money and yeah when when they can't manage their primary business of rugby league you worry about them being able That's, to and i've made that point extensively um to people in the club i'm like just sell the land you're not a property developer you run a football company club and the directors do it part-time the directors all have so you've got a ceo that runs the club and then you've got a very minimal staff and then the directors all run the property development they all have full-time jobs. Mm. So this is all being done part-time. I was, I was, for that very reason, I've been super cynical that they're going to get the development over the line and any money that's currently in the bank, which there are some significant funds in the bank now, is a real credit to the guys who got it off the ground and got it running because it didn't, not, not everything pointed towards success. So are you still cynical about it now or do you think you've, you're going well, to get still, there? there's still period, uh, there's still, um, there's still money to be monetized. And if, I don't know if you've driven past the site, there's no work going on. And this is purely a COVID thing, right? Um, and I make the point on the podcast that <laughs> there was always going to be something that came along. And this happens to be a global yeah. pandemic. But they tweaked the development. It's now almost been 10 years since the development was voted on and approved by the membership. And it's taken on three iterations. Uh, and I actually sat on a committee uh, to get the first one through with the locals. Um, and it's morphed a lot since then. Mm. And I think they just got too big. Um, and had they stuck with the original plan, it would have been finished money in the bank. Yeah. Um, and we're not finished and we've only got half the money in the bank. Right. So watch this space. It could mm. be interesting. Back to the, the team. And you mentioned 83 and the possibility of getting kicked out, which, you know, was, was a very close thing. The, the half payoff for which the, the players, you know, ended up taking. I, I we talked about this in our one of our early chapters where the parallels between ET who arrived that year decides to take it and stay compared with Terry Lamb offered the same deal at Wests you know decides he wasn't putting up with that goes to Canterbury has Still you know agree. yeah and I mean ET's career was of course like as stellar as you, as you can get but doesn't get a, a premiership out of it uh, he is someone who was a massive part of my childhood. I, I had a period in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s where I stopped going for the Dragons and every year I'd pick a team to go for based on a player I like, you know, whether it was Phil Blake or, you know, yeah, Ellery Hanley. Young kid stuff. Yeah. And and E.T. and Mark McGaw, it was, you know, probably 90, 91. They were my guys. And yeah. I, there's even pictures of me wearing a Sharks jersey, which is to my eternal shame. <laughs> but, but um, what what does E.T. mean to you and some of the other Sharks of, of that era? Oh, E.T.'s. Uh, phenomenon like the sharks have always been built on one really big personality in the early days it was tommy bishop um and then steve rogers came along and and steve rogers was the one personality um and then there was a really long period where et was it and, and i was the same we're the same age so you know he was the face of rugby league for a lot of years glamorous you know articulate a hell of a player and you wonder look if he played for a manly or a or a Bulldogs, like how many premierships mm. would he won? Um, but he was just an enigma, you know, and 
when we finally got him on the podcast and got to meet him, we were just like, we're not worthy. It, <laughs> it was that moment. But yeah, and for him to have such a long career and yeah, I mean, you you won't find anybody who doesn't love him. Yeah. It's just a stone cold fact. And even what went on in his personal mm. life, which isn't the greatest story ever told, uh, that seems to be forgotten. Yeah. Um, conveniently. Well, I'm, I'm just so glad it, it was in time for the, for the premiership. Because seeing him on the field after the game, like I'm, I'm someone who you know I'm going to put it out there. I never wanted to see you guys yeah. win the comp. That's a rivalry, right? I never yeah. Wanted to see the game ever. <laughs> but seeing him on the field, seeing him arm in arm with Gal, I was like, you know, I've got you know hair standing yeah, up was, thinking about it. That and that photo uh, taken by Chuck um, uh, won a Walkley. Um, and it's been immortalized on the side of the Triple Bull mm. Surf Shop. So if you're ever in Cronulla, you'll see that. And fun fact, the NRL actually paid for that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, to be put up. Uh, so it's immortalized on the side of a, of a, a surf shop in Cronulla. And that moment, I remember driving back from the grand final and coming up in the Instagram because I was at the ground and didn't didn't see it. Um, and I was just like, I, just tears coming up in my face because it just... It just so, so immortalized the, the relief, the fear, because it was, although there was a feeling of joy and it was more of a feeling of relief yeah. and release. Finally, it's happened. Mm. We don't have to stress about it anymore because there's so many false dawns, yeah. particularly in 97 in the Super League. Mm. Well, let's get to Super League then. So leading up to it, the, the Sharks were one of the few Sydney teams who actually, you know, could see the writing on the wall and, and actually like went after it. You know, they, approached Super League, basically, and made sure that they were in the box seat from early on. Yeah, well, um, and I sent you the the uh, interview that we did with Peter Gow where mm. I asked him about that directly. And I have subsequently, in, in my research, spoken to a few of the old heads that were around the club, namely Jonathan Docking, who was uh, at the end of his playing career, um, but he was a long-time board member of the club. And, and, they, and the, the feeling was that, any uh, investigation of a merger was was always a backup plan. That was never the plan. Uh, they'd been in receivership two years. So if we're looking at 94, 95, two to three years prior, they still didn't have any money. Rupert Murdoch comes along. He's going to blow the blow it wide open. Peter Gow's in charge of the club, you know, and finally the Sharks have an administrator that has some relevance with the, the administrative body um, and they're doing okay on the field. So uh, the information I've been given is that it was any merger was never really seriously entertained and that as soon as Super League popped their head up, they're like, this is our way out. Mm. And then as it went on, Peter Gow explained to me that it was made abundantly clear by the ARL that the Sharks as a standalone club had no future. Um, so they were all in with Super League with very, very little, very little resistance from the management, the board or the supporter base. Yeah. So that that's funny you mentioned that uh, a merger was never seriously entertained because uh, when they did approach the Dragons, I think it was Warren Lockwood um, from the Dragons who said, you know, he saw the, the proposal they sent and, you know, it was all bloody blue. Yeah. So it seems that that speaks of the Sharks knew that they weren't going to get that yeah. over the line. So they wanted to be, you know, good management is that you, you have a strategy but you investigate um, uh, some plan Bs and a merger was a plan B, and, and I hate the idea of mergers and relocations. I know you guys talk about there being too many clubs in Sydney, but that's a conversation you and I can have at another time. But a merge with Illawarra would have made sense uh, more than St George and Illawarra mm. merging. You could have had the Southern Sharks or, or whatever, and you know the Wollongong, Wollongong still had a really strong junior nursery at that time, which matched up with Cronulla. You know, and there's uh, there's uh, geographic. Uh, synergies there that would have made sense but Peter Gow was very much like no we're going to we're going to go all in with Super League and we're going to and they did well out of it financially they did well out of it and it's hard to know had that not happened would the Sharks be here probably not I think almost certainly not and it just shows you the that logic doesn't work in in terms of rugby league and yeah, mergers right. I mean there is no good reason why the Dragons and the Sharks Shouldn't be a merged entity, but it wouldn't work, and, no. and we all know that. Same no. with Roosters and uh, and South, and that's why North and North and Manly was yep. just a, a folly. It was yep. a, a very very silly idea, and I mean that you'll probably do a, a chapter on that. But that you know, was a strategy by Manly to just swallow up 
uh, Norse and when the Saints and Cronulla were looking at each other for a merger, they were, both sets of management would have been looking at it with with the lens of how do we take this club over? Mm, yeah. And we've seen that with St. George and Illawarra, with Illawarra being the, the minor partner in the merger. Yeah. I mean, but we're not here to talk about mergers. It's a whole other yeah, exactly. 20 episodes for, for, for the Rugby League Digest. <laughs> but I, I do want to um, talk about Peter Gow a bit more. Uh, one of the, the great characters of his era, we all know how it ended, which is one of the funniest Rugby League stories ever, um, the... the Chinese restaurant incident. Yeah, yeah. Um, King Wan. Yeah. Now, can I go on the record? We had him on our podcast and he maintains to this day that he had done that multiple times and had always remunerated the jersey <laughs> owner. And he said that he'd go up to the Chinese restaurant after a win and he'd go up to if it beat Manly, he said, mate, I'll give you 500 bucks for your jersey. Because he's, he's a multi. Yeah. Um, and usually the guy had handed over and he cut it up for a bit of a laugh. Now... <laughs> He said he did that with the the chap from St. George and then he might have overdone the whole uh, lampooning and then the fella regretted his decision. Yeah. He maintains to this day that he paid for that jersey and it was his to cut up. Was headbutting Barry Beath a, a good idea? That was probably no. I mean, yeah, that, that's probably the forgotten element of the side. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the scissors and the Chinese restaurant um, uh, is one of the great stories. But yeah, he was an emotional guy. Uh, still very involved to the club to this day. He still goes to all the all the games, um, and he provided the Sharks with some relevance with with head office. I mean, Earl McPherson's father, a very successful businessman, and had he not done those things, he would have probably been the chairman for another ten years at mm-hmm. least. It's funny the way he's perceived uh, at the ARL. Ken Arthurson, in particular, um, who in his book just wrote about him as an absolute snake and you know more than more than bullfrog more than any of the broncos blokes it was peter gow that he singled out as you know a complete traitor well peter gow had no time for the arl peter gow had an opinion whether it's steeped in fact but i can sympathize with it that the the arl had no plans moving forward that included cronulla sharks so he was basically like we'll stuff you um, we're here for number one and we'll take every avenue uh, to ensure our survival. And that made us the ultimate Super League sellouts, um, but it kept the club alive. So, I mean, where do you where do you flop with that as a supporter? You've got to say, well, I'm glad that my club still exists and isn't a footnote in history. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's one thing we're doing with these case studies is weighing up whether certain clubs made the right decision. I don't think you could possibly mount an argument that going to Super League wasn't the right thing for Cronulla to do. And I, and I try. I rang around and, and said, because I was only 15, 1995 I was 15, so while I was excited about Super League, I had no clue of the nuance of, to me it was this bright, shiny, new thing which was going to be great and Cronulla were going to have a great team and going to be a lot of night games and there'll be heaps of chicks there. You know what I mean? Like that was the... That was the thinking. I had no clue of the nuance of the media being played off and the bigger issues at play. Um, so I rang around and, and spoke to a few of the old heads and they, they, it's almost unanimous that there was almost no pushback. There was a few older guys that were like, oh, well, you know, the ARL gave us our start. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go against them. But as soon as the old world, if we go with them, they'll cut us loose. Everybody just flipped. Mm-hmm. Did, was there any talk about the, the specific culture of News Limited or the way that Super League broke? Was there any resistance to how it actually played out? Oh, I mean, I, I think you'd be silly to say that people didn't feel like it wasn't a necessary evil, so to speak. Um, I don't think anybody thought, hey, here's Rupert Murdoch, let's jump into bed with him because he's a legend. Mm. It was, this is our way This is our way to survive. You know, you jump in the lifeboat with the, the evil reptile. Or you, or you drown. Yeah. That's basically your options. Um, and, you know, pro, for other clubs looking in and seeing, you know, ET is the face of it, Elmer Furson turning up to games, making the grand final, you know, these guys are loving this too much. Mm. Um, which, which, you know, and as a supporter going to other grounds, he used to cop it deluxe. But, you know, it's an, it's an interesting story and it's pretty unanimous that it saved the Sharks and also provided them with more, a big, a big, a big war chest to squander, but they squandered. Yeah. Mm, that, certainly not the only ones to yeah. squander a war chest in rugby league. Uh, one of the interesting things for me in, in our research was the, 
actual April Fool's Day when they signed, understandably ET was was the big prize that they mm. had to get. It was get ET on board and, and you've got the rest of the Sharks. 100%. And in Mike Coleman's Super League book, he you know went into that in some detail and said that when when they went to ET, he, his first question was, "What about the juniors?" You know, so he he was from the start looking at the future of the club, not just his own fortunes. Do you think that's a genuine? Uh, the, the the Cronulla Club, and one of the things I love about it um, is that it's so intrinsically tied to its local junior base. And in terms of the player numbers, we still have our our player numbers punch way above. Um, the geographical numbers that we have uh, and we still have a like a local a grade and um, one of the great things is it was just grand it was just um, local grand final week just gone and ordinarily when 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 shark parks open for business all of the a grade like 9 a 10 a 11 a all played on shark park mm. so you know the local juniors playing for Menai roosters or Cronulla carrying bar or gaimi gorillas they can play on the same theater as as their heroes and and Local juniors has always been intrinsically linked with the club, and any time we fall on hard times, there's always these cries. We'll just get the local boys in, you know, because they've saved us so many times. So I think that would have been genuine because he's a, he's a DLRCL junior. You know, went to went to DLRCL Carringbar uh, High School, and I think that would have been genuine. And I spoke to a player who wanted to remain anonymous, but their view on it was this Super League thing's coming, and it's going to be our chance to make it rain financially. Yeah. Um, so where do we sign up? Well, I guess the only one who wasn't thinking that was Adam Ritson. I don't know if anyone you spoke to mentioned the Adam Ritson situation. No, um, the Adam Ritson situation was different in that while E.T. uh, was a glamour player, um, he had a long story rusted on history with Cronulla. It would have been very difficult to entice him to another club, where Adam Ritson was a different story, you know, debuted it was a 16 mm. um and there were big money offers coming from everywhere uh very early before he had the the history with the club so he was a bit of an outlier um but the rest of them were, were red hot ready to go yeah and uh still see adam around about the place he, he drinks up around the pub yeah right and going to to the on-field stuff when did did john lang start in 95 there 94 94 so we had arthur beats and so we Won the, won the minor premiership in 88 and really fell off a cliff. Um, Arthur Beetson was signed up and he uh, brought in the likes of David Peachy uh, to, and, and Les Davidson to strengthen things up. But it was when uh, John Lang arrived and he brought very much the Melbourne Storm mentality of we'll get some of the Queensland players that didn't make the Broncos system, so Paul Green... And, and a couple of others. Um, so he, they had, along with ET um, and and Mitch Healy and those local juniors, then you had David Peachy, uh, Matt Rogers was coming into the system. Um, so you're really starting to develop a pretty good-looking squad. And John Lang's very uh, deep backline moves that, that were common in the 1990s suited that team uh, down at the ground. And then you had a couple of local cult heroes, Mark Lang, Nathan Long, um, and you got the you got the makings of a pretty pretty handy side in that period. And you mentioned you know it was like the social event on a Saturday night, and you know it was just the team was good at the time that all this turmoil was was going on. So the actual Super League year itself, did you see anything different about the football, or, or was it just a continuation uh, of? No, we felt that the rule changes suited the team that we had. You know, the winner's kick, um, you know, uh, the more open... Uh, was it unlimited in change? In- uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely was for ARL. I think it was for Super League 2. There was definitely a feeling that the Super League rule changes suited the Sharks. Um, and I can remember even some talk about, oh, they've been manipulated so that the Sharks can be pumped up to compete with the Broncos. Because obviously the Broncos side in Super League is just... <laughs> give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it looked like they were going to run away with it without any competition, and eventually they did. But, yeah, there was some talk that the, the rules had been manipulated to, to bring those teams up to the Broncos' level. But there was definitely a feeling that with the open, expansive play, Peachy, Rogers, um, and, and those those types of guys, uh, it suited the Sharks, absolutely. And what about the game day or, or game night experience? You mentioned the fireworks and all that sort of stuff. 
was that that was happening before Super League, or did that? Yeah, well, that was like a special thing, right? So the night games were happening, and then they'd occasionally do yeah. um, fireworks. But then when Super League came, like, it was there every week. Yeah, and it always had the Shark Park's always still even now got this backyard vibe. You know, like you've got the the power lines coming over, and back then, you know, the southern stand was made of timber, and you had the old clock, and it felt very backyard. But then Super League coming along provided a bit of razzle-dazzle. You know, you had bands playing before the game and after the game. Um, there was actually a, a band in the Southern Grandstand. Um, so when the Sharks would get on the attack, they'd play like some song encouraging. It was very <laughs> Americanized. Yeah. Um, you know, the Jaws music would go up when they were on the attack and it provided a bit of, uh, you know, polishing the turd maybe, but um, American razzle-dazzle, which as a young person, you know, you're thinking, this is, how good is this? Whereas probably for someone who'd been there 10 years ago and you turn up and see three grades with five-minute break and you have a pie and a can of beer, it's a different. Yeah. Um, you're looking at a completely different equation. And definitely, like, I was all in. I was just like, this is great. All my mates were like, let's go down there to every game. You know, there were the super sharks and we were all in, mate. And I think that's something it's very easy to forget that all the, you know, the Americanized, the razzle-dazzle. It's easy when you're, you know, you've been going to games for 30, 40 years and, and you just want to watch the footy. Correct. It, it's not for us, no. all, all this stuff, you know, no. like any kind of, you know, I, I laugh at going to Cogra and seeing them have the, the fire go up in the middle yeah. of the day. Yeah. But I took my kids on the weekend. And they loved it. They loved it. You yeah. know, it, it's it's not for us. So yeah. I, I think it's really easy to forget that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And... You know, I'm sure you've been to, to Points Bet Stadium. It's not the greatest uh, facility in the world, so anything you could do to bring it up to a to a level. And I'm constantly on about that. Like now that Bank West said they were going to have a new SFS, we get further and further behind. Mm. Um, I mean, thankfully it's not as bad as Brookvale or Leichhardt, but you know, it's it's drifting behind. Yeah, it, and the renovations will do a lot to 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 fix that up. But um, we're seeing now in the game where there's a real disparity between the haves and have-nots. And for the Sharks to make the finals for the last uh, six years in a row mm. for a club our size is, is enormous. And if you take out the, the disaster that was 2014 with Asada, it would have been um, they would have made eight from eight. Yeah, it's, and it's funny because I kind of like don't think about them as a perennial finals team, but they, they keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, Battler, I mean... They, we feel that they probably got away from that this year, that real gritty, grimy. You couldn't have said during 2013 or 2015 that they were a favourite team of people to watch, like for, for neutrals to watch because they were just a prison ball, mm. we call it. You know, um, but making the finals regularly is better than not, as you know, plenty of other clubs, particularly Sydney clubs, are experiencing. What do you think a, a victory in that Super League Grand Final would have meant? Do you think that possibly could have given that grand final and that competition some legitimacy the way that Newcastle winning did? I don't know. Um, I, maybe at the time it would have scratched the niche for Cronulla supporters because they hadn't had... And even, the, you know, maybe not 10 years ago, but 15 years ago, people were still saying, oh, you know, we won an Amco Cup when, like, we have no memory of the yeah. Cup, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but it was always... When you looked at the records and it said Sharks grand final appearances, you know, 1973, 78, you're like, well, it doesn't even count. Yeah. So it was always going to be written off as the, the – it would have always been written off as, no, you've never won a real premiership. Yeah, yeah. It would have been definitely even more than an just an asterisk. I mean, had they done it, they would have had to beat one of the best teams of the modern yeah. era, but it is what it is. But I, I do wonder that. Now, I, I ultimately think you're right, but it just seems – the knock-on Super League to this day is the Broncos won the competition that was set up for them to win. Yep. And I, I think that's a very simpleton analysis, but you know, not without some merit. I think maybe the Sharks winning that comp could have given it some cultural staying power. Oh, and it would have been an enormous thing for them to win because I know a few people that went to Brisbane for the grand final and they said just flying up there, they felt like they were thousands in the, in the betting to win it. And when you turn up to ANZ Stadium at the time and it's the Broncos' home ground with 40,000 Broncos supporters, you just they were just like, we're just no chance to win this. And then, you know, the game didn't go their way. Um, 
but yeah, the fear, it would have been an enormous victory had they done it. But I still don't think it would have provided legitimacy with the wider rugby league world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right there. Uh, turning to the the reunification of the game, did any of the people you spoke to say anything about like how close the Sharks got to any mergers or how close they were to maybe not making it through? No, uh, they basically the feeling was they got the money in the bank and were ultimately glad that there was a reunification. So. Had the two competitions continued on, which isn't something that's really ex- ex- extrapolated on, that could have been very difficult for everyone involved. There was definitely a gladness that all of a sudden we've got a reunified comp, the Sharks are standing alone, and now we've got money in the bank. So, you know, we sort of sold our souls to the devil in, in some regard, but we're now standing pretty good stead, and, and they continued to go on and have some good days. 2001, arguably one of our better years, Hearts crushed by Blacklock and uh, Mundine. You know, minor premiers that year led to... It, that was a bit of a golden period for the Sharks on the field, playing an attractive brand of football, big crowds in a Shark Park. So the feeling was ultimately that it was a reunification was the right thing. Everyone was happy. The Sharks now had money in the bank, good prospects on the playing field, and eventually they squandered it. But, you know, the ensuing period was fun. Definitely like a great era, a great lost era. Um, that Sharks team that, you know, a lot of fun players to watch. I always think of that, the 99 um, preliminary final um, where you guys are minor premiers. And... Yeah, sorry, 99. <laughs> I said 2000. Yeah. I meant 99. Um, I thought you did. I was like, I was yeah. trying to do the calculations in my head. Um, we're, we're preparing to do a, we, so Sharkcast, we do a, um, a deep dive into a, an era. And I'm interviewing Brett Kamali next week about 2002 about everything. That's why I said 2001. So 99. Yeah, yeah. 99. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, I was just, I, I was at that game and uh, I don't, no one really gave us a chance because you guys were that good that really year. Hot. And I think it was 8 0 at half time, you guys were up and yeah. then Mundine destroyed you guys yeah. in the second half. But th- that was a really great team. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of local juniors in that team, like the likes of uh, Dean Treestar, Nick Graham, you know, uh, ET was still going around in 99, Matt Rogers. Uh, before he left to go to to the to rugby, so it was a it was, a, and then we had likes of Colin Best, Russell Richardson. It was a great local emphasis on the local. Look, obviously David Peachy and whatnot, but he'd been around for a long yeah. while by that point. Pro- the team probably didn't have the steel um, that it needed. But you know, you think back, it's a different era to the teams that win the comp now. You could win the comp with attacking flair back then. Yeah, doesn't really happen this much. No, days. yeah. Well, that's. When you look at rule changes in different eras, it's, it's what I always say that the defense always catches up, mm. and any like attacking invasion you you bring in will get found out and then you know yeah. shut down eventually. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but so that that period after Super League, um, post Super League was a yeah, really good one, and that's kind of so. If it was Super League that sparked my interest in the club, it was that ensuing period that um, really got me in. And, you know, the era with Preston Campbell and that time was, was a great time as a supporter. And then there were a lot of dark days post-2005, a lot of dark days. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's been a ride. But, yeah, on the, on the Super League, um, you know, it was just it's, – it's interesting. And it wasn't until, like, after and when I started going to a lot of away grounds did I really begin to see the resentment. Like, playing against South, you get – you know, the abuse was enormous. Mm. Manly, I remember leaving, leaving, I think it might have been when they were playing the Northern Eagles and very, a rare win at Brookvale. That would have been 2002 because Kamali was playing. And like we had beer cans thrown at us and like, but it was a Super League horse. And I'm like, you know, I'm full, like, got my flag and my jersey on. And I'm like, wow, this, there's genuine hatred and venom here. Not just, this isn't just banter. This no. is, this is nasty, nasty hatred. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty bracing, really. And it hasn't really gone away, or not fully. Like th- this no. is this is one of the reasons we started the project was that I feel as a game we haven't truly reckoned with Super League. No, I think you're right about that. I think that, and this is what I said about the mainstream media. It hasn't been explored in the in the for the everyman supporter enough. It's just like this dirty little secret that happened that tore the game apart and had deep seeding ramifications that hasn't really been dealt with. It hasn't been dealt with. The the I mean, obviously Mike Coleman wrote his book about it, but 
and I don't know what I'm what I'm searching for, but there certainly hasn't been any closure on it at, at an administrative level. No. And I remember, um, you'll enjoy this, the game day bar underneath the Peter Burns stand, up until about four years ago, still had, there were murals painted on the... Um, on the on the wall, and the, this was this, the last mural painted was nineteen ninety seven, and it was Super League, so it had all the players with the Super League logos, and still the Super League logos. And it wasn't until about five years ago that someone painted over it. Yeah, and somewhere in that intervening intervening fifteen years, someone had come along and just painted over the Super League logos on the jersey and the <laughs> Super League logo on the wall, um, like hastily just tried to erase it. Um, because people would write letters of complaint to the club yeah. about it. It was yeah. just bizarre. Um, yeah, but I, I certainly don't think there's been any closure. Um, and, you know, the protagonists are getting on now. I mean, you talk about, um, what was his name from News? Uh, Ken. Cowley. Yeah, I mean, he's even still alive or? He is. Yeah. I think he's in, you know, retirement, but he's still alive. But, but I mean, they're knocking on a bit, right? Yeah. I mean, Arco's in his 90s. Yeah. Quail must be pushing 80. Yeah, so, I mean, it's an interesting, just, yeah, interesting chapter. And I know that sort of the with the Rugby League Digest, you know, the stories around the Bulldogs and Canberra and Brisbane are probably more interesting. Um, that's why I've contacted you and said, I've got these resources um, for the Sharks because, you know, the, the view was the Sharks just sold them, were all in, and that's basically the way it shook down. Yeah, well... It- Maybe that explains it, but here's a question for you. So when I was putting the, the first season together and, and sorting it into chapters, those chapters came about in a large way organically. I'd you know, separate and say, well, I've got you know 300 pages here on the Broncos. I've got 250 pages on the Bulldogs. You look at the Sharks and, and there's just... One line. Yeah, yeah. Like there's so little there. And I mean, part of that, I, I guess, speaks to how like simple it was hmm. to get the sharks but is there anything else that you think is a reason for that i i on reflecting on it i, I gave it a lot of thought before i came in because i didn't want to come in just shooting from the hip but i actually think that outside of the the monetary benefit i felt that it was the sharks chance to gain some legitimacy they never had any influence with the arl or the New South Wales Rugby League, or whoever. They never had any influence in, in the administration. And I think they felt that if they put this flag in the ground with Peter Gow at the helm, they could, along with ensure their medium-term survival, they could say, hey, we want a bit more of a say, and we're happy to rock the boat. Um, and then they actually got that, because after Peter Gow left, Barry Pearce was the subsequent chairman, who went on to become chairman of the ARL. Um, and uh, Barry, lovely, lovely fellow, put a lot of good years into the Sharks. Um, he obviously, you know, was a very smart operator, but the Sharks had never had any kind of that influence. And I feel that that it will be unsaid, but that search for legitimacy in the right wider rugby league world, other than this small yokel club on the beach, that's that that was the vibe that they had. Now they felt like they want to have have had have some more muscle, and they they. They achieved that to a degree. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I was going to ask you because it seems they they definitely got survival, but then in the the twenty five years since, it seems that quest for legitimacy is perhaps ongoing. Um, I think a lot of that is the geographical thing sandwiched uh, in between the St George and Lawara thing, as you are. And I'll admit we've we've brought it up, you know, quite a yeah. few times on the show. Like if you are talking about always reducing, first cab off the rank, yeah, always, yeah. So I, I think that quest for legitimacy maybe is in some ways unfulfilled, but, I mean, you're still here. Well, I feel like now it's probably as good as it's going to get. Uh, if they're, they're committed to staying at Woolaware, which every administrator that comes along, and Dino Mezzatesta, um, who's now CEO, and the new chairman, Steve Mace, have said that they're committed to Woolaware long-term, the best you're going to get is a little upstart club that punches above its weight. That's all you're going to get, um, which is fine by me. Uh, you know, the little club down on the beaches with the shark emblem. And in my time as a, maybe you want to reflect on this, Michael, as a supporter, we sort of went from being that ET era, 99, 2001, entertaining team, attractive, um, sort of being everybody's second favourite outside of Dragon supporters to universally hated. 
the Paul Gallon, the the Asada, the the salary cap cheating, the win at any cost, um, existing at the expense of other potentially more um, or more worthy uh, uh, franchises has led to a genuine dislike, round dislike from the rugby league community, which I've seen manifest itself more and more as the years go on. Mm. Which has has engendered uh, a rugby league classic of a siege mentality among the team and its fans. <laughs> How many times have you heard of siege mentality? <laughs> I'm um, quite uh, negative about their chances of siege ment- siege against the the Rays this weekend. I think the juice might have gone out of, out of the lemon. <laughs> well, as we're recording, as you are listening to this, you already know the the result of that. Um, but we'll here here in the past we don't know, but you know. Hope you, I, I gotta say, like, I, I loved that, uh, heritage jersey you were wearing on the weekend. Great, wasn't it? So good. Yeah, I'm always right banging emails off about this jersey. No, it's not right. That's it's the wrong shade of blue. That is the, the one you were wearing on the weekend. That's, that, their jersey. that's the jersey. Yeah, right. We agree on something. They're like, I'm always like, like the jersey conversation because I'm like, there's only a few rugby league nerds that really get their, their knickers in a knot about the jerseys, but I'm one of them. And, you know, the, on the Sharks jersey, the white bit's always too wide or they'd make it into a V. No, it's not right. I can't stand watching camera. Their green isn't right. Yeah, yeah. It's wrong. I think that the last couple of years, it's as close it to being close, right, you yeah. know. But I, and I think that's something to do with the the way they're the, the glossy, you know. Yeah. The, the jerseys now, you can't the have machine. that cotton. Yeah, yeah. So some of the old color schemes don't work in the, in yeah. the new shiny jerseys. Yeah. But... Uh, Anything's better than those LG jerseys in the the Kamali era. They they yeah. were a per- personal low point for. Fins up the side. Yeah. Oh, oh, horrendous. <laughs> the white one. I'm still um, into Ben Ross about giving me a, a one of his white LG jerseys. That's like a white whale for jersey collectors. <laughs> that, that was a shocker. But I mean, no team's immune from putting a shocking alternative jersey up. Some of those early 2000s are terrible. Mm, Absolutely Yeah, terrible. A, a really horrible era for, for jerseys. Uh, we're we're going to finish up, but and you've, you've touched on, on maybe some of it, but I'll just give you the floor, give you an opportunity to speak on the Sharks' future and, and how confident you are of remaining the, the little upstart on the beach. Um, financially, I think that they're okay for the medium term. Uh, they did a very astute purchase in buying Kiriwi Golf Club. So now they're operating at a Kiriwi Golf Club as the uh, as the work continues on at Woolaware. Um, and however, as long as they remain away from Woolaware and don't have a lease club down there, I'll continue to remain nervous. They do have forty mil in the bank from in forward earnings from the development, which is fantastic. But what's the, the Broncos' operating budget? Eighteen million a year. You know, it's got to be looked in in uh, relative to that as it's. That's not going to keep a rugby league club afloat for for long. Mm. Um, so I, I, there's a genuine sense of unease about them n- not having that project finished, um, and yeah, the, continuing to play away from home, it's it's an uneasy time. On the field, uh, I think they deserve to finish eight eighth this year. Um, moving forward, uh, and we talk about this on our podcast. Shane Flanagan, um, he was the one who recruited. Matt Moylan, Aaron Woods, uh, Sean Johnson, who's been great, um, and, and Josh Dugan. Um, now, some of those guys, you can make a, a cogent argument, have been fantastic, and Sean Johnson has been fantastic, but very, very underwhelming results from the others. And and if you take the three highest-paid players are not performing, makes it very hard, and they're on long-term contracts. Mm. So I don't see how that turns around. But um, in terms of financially and administratively, you made a point in the opening stands that they're only ever one disaster away from something happening. And that's what it is as a Shark supporter. You're always like, what is going to come down the line? Whether it's a SADA, which, you know, pulled the rug from under us, and then there was a salary cap breach. I mean, we went through about five, four years after the premiership thinking there's a real legitimate chance that there's going to be a headline in tomorrow's paper that the premiership's been stripped yeah. for whatever reason. Not many clubs you can say that about. <laughs> they keep you on your toes. <laughs> All right. On that note, Newman, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, everyone, especially Sharks fans, uh, get behind Sharkcast Radio. Um, you know, a really entertaining listen. So uh, thanks for joining me today and, and good and you, luck on the weekend. You uh, some kind of award for sitting through a couple of episodes of that. It must have curled your toes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel like I can approach it in a 
professional manner these days you know maybe a couple of years ago not so much but <laughs> but uh anyway thanks for joining me it's been a pleasure to be here and keep up the good work Thank All you. Right, thanks mate and we'll speak to you next time <laughs>